Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. This is Rachel Sherlock and beside me is Phoebe Watson. Hello! We're just giving a little quick introduction to... The podcast proper is going to start in a minute, but we recorded this a little while ago and we were saving it for a rainy day and it has in fact been a very rainy day. <laughs> in a very rainy week. Pretty much. But actually I think we, we've decided to put it out now simply because we were thinking about what would be a nice topic for Advent and we kind of couldn't think of a better one than the one we'd already recorded. <laughs> Too far ahead of ourselves. Exactly. So we thought we'd just come in at the start and give it a bit of an introduction. We could have maybe not done this and tried to slip it under the rug, but we wanted to make sure that we wished everyone a happy Advent and even a happy Christmas. I mean, it would be strange to have a podcast on Mary in Advent and not talk about the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. I mean, that's exactly it. So yes, the topic of the podcast is Mary and Marian devotions. So we thought it was just a really nice time to reflect on Mary yeah, it's such a lovely time to just dwell with Mary in the last month of her pregnancy. Yeah, and to use this time to draw closer to her. I think it's a lovely time for Advent Reflections. So we hope you enjoy this podcast and we will look forward to recording again soon. Enjoy! Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me, as is her want, is Phoebe Watson. Hello! And I'm thrilled to have Phoebe with me for this particular episode of Risky Enchantment because we are covering a topic that I never thought that Phoebe would agree to cover with me. Uh, Thinking back, like, whatever it was, six years ago? Yep, six years. Six years ago when I knew Phoebe first in her her Anglican days. (laughs) (laughs) In my gung-ho Protestant days. Exactly. And so the topic of today's podcast is... Mary and Marian devotions, which is kind of as Catholic as it gets in many ways. (laughs) It's very exciting. I thought this would be a really interesting one to cover, just because looking at it from a culture point of view, I I guess in some ways it's not so obviously an aspect of culture. Anymore. Anymore. It's much more to do with, as is in the name, devotion, personal piety, personal prayer, and even theology. But I do actually see it as a part of culture, particularly because the images of our Blessed Lady are so kind of stamped into our culture, whether we like it or not. Yeah, Um, I think they're very iconic that you kind of can't get away from them. (laughs) Literally. Yeah, and that... I think also the fact that Mary does have all of these different devotions, and we're going to go into exactly what that means, but just the sort of different depictions of Mary that are very set in stone of like how you depict Mary in a certain way for a particular type of prayer, that I think it does confuse people. It does make people think, well, why are there so many different Marys in inverted commas? And why does she look so different or have so many different aspects to her? Why does she need so many names? Uh, Yeah, that's another big one. What do you call her again? We can just keep going. Yeah. And so I think in some ways it is a part of our culture more than we might think because of these images. I know one of my pet peeves, if I could get rid of like one very small annoyance in the world, it's this new trend for blasphemous votive candles where they take the pictures from votive candles and put like Kim Kardashian's face and put it where Our Lady's face would be on a, on a votive candle. Um, Why? It, like nothing annoys me more. There's, it's out of all of the types of like tongue in cheek, Christian twisting, subverting it. Honestly, I don't know why, but the votive candles are the ones that annoy me the most. It, of the like petty ones. Yeah, of the petty things, of course. Uh, there, there are much bigger things to be worried about in the world, but still, it's worth being annoyed about that. But the only reason why that works is because that image of the Immaculate Heart and for Jesus, the Sacred Heart, is so iconic. It doesn't really function unless people know what those things at least look like, even if they don't know what they are. And what I was saying to Phoebe is that she's sort of our highest claim of 
both theology and beauty in the space of humanity. Humanity without divinity. Yeah. These are our greatest boast. That's the Wordsworth quote, isn't it? Our, so. our tainted nature's solitary boast, which is a beautiful quote. But that the very essence of the divine truth that she reveals is in her beauty in many ways. Yeah, and you also can't separate the theology and the beauty. Yeah. They're so intertwined. In, in a very profound way. And so, of course, she's been depicted in a million different ways in art because it's, it's such a thing to kind of reach for when you're creating works of art or when you're creating symbolism around it or all of these things, or poetry, just like w William Wordsworth. But, like, because she is so profoundly beautiful like and I do mean profoundly beautiful yeah I but... think that's also how we can have so many different facets to her mm -hmm. like we were talking about earlier of how you've got all these kind of different devotions and images yeah but the different devotional images usually point you straight back to the rosary yeah and your devotion to Mary as a person rather than your devotion to her through a particular image or apparition. Yeah. And then I described it as different photographs of Mary. Yeah, seeing um, her at like different angles and different situations and different backgrounds and different locations. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. And I liked your one even better. Well, I was saying maybe it's also a bit like if you are fascinated with a historical figure and you read lots of different biographies, well, often the biographies will take a different angle or a different approach. So maybe, like I was saying with Winston Churchill, maybe you're focusing on World War One or World War Two or his writing or his... His journalism. His journalism or his personal life, that you can take all of these angles and it's still them. It's still that person behind the angle that you don't lose the person in favour of the angle. Yeah. But that it gives you a deeper understanding. The the devotions, which are... I think we're staying away mainly from the apparitions. We're I've got one in there. Exciting stuff. And these are more driven through piety. So they're aspects of Our Lady, like I was saying with the biography, that you're, you can focus on and explore a particular aspect of the divine mystery that is Our Lady. Yeah, I think we kind of... It started off with, you'd made a list of a load of titles of Our Lady, mm -hmm. which often have particular images or mm -hmm. devotions associated with them. Yeah. And then we're just going to talk about some of them. Yeah, and I think for the most part we've picked ones that aren't quite so famous. Yeah. We haven't done, like, The Immaculate Heart, for instance, or... I mean, it, there's a bit of a mix, but I thought it was nice to sort of explore some of the ones that people may not have. There's less of a chance of lots of people having a devotion to these. Some new Marys for you to look up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just talk about them, what they teach us in terms of symbolism, because I think that's very closely tied to our appreciation of art, but what they teach us about our relationship with Mary and with God... And, and why we like them and why they're interesting, essentially. It's, it's wonderful because it gets to be a deeply personal thing. I mean, you know, the reason I picked these out of the list is cause, because I liked them. Yeah, how we managed to be drawn to them in the first place. Yeah, we were going to say a little bit about why those different devotions exist. And in some ways it does come back to something as simple as because we like them. I think God in his grace has given us so many different ways to approach him and because a huge way to approach him is through his mother that even to approach his mother there is a multitude of different ways yeah that was such a difficult thing for me to learn when when you were coming into the faith when i was coming into the faith i think that's so interesting because yeah it's nice to think of you in some ways, I, I my, my birthday is on a Marian feast day. I'm not saying I don't struggle with a devotion to Mary. It, it, I do really have to work at making it feel real and making it feel present to me. But in terms of actual nuts and bolts of having a devotion to Mary, like that's been part of my culture growing up my whole life. So I've kind of taken it for granted. Like you would have always had a little Marian altar at home. Yeah, and... we would have said the rosary pretty much every night around our statue of Mary. Yeah, it, it was very much part of the fabric of my family life growing up. So it's kind of cool to talk to you about it because you kind of had to start from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, as a child, I either ignored or mildly scoffed at images of Mary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think I was ever particularly rude about them. We'll, mm -hmm. give it, we'll give me that much credit at least. No, but it was when we were living together at university and you were still a Protestant. I do remember that the only time that I kept, ever came close to really having a fight with you was when you made a really flippant comment about Mary. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, Mama. Yeah. Um, she's a controversial one. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, having grown up with the idea that Catholics hmm, put too much emphasis on Mary. Yeah. I don't think I ever went fully to the extreme of, oh, you will worship Mary. Yeah. Because I knew what worship was. I had a little bit more sense than that. <laughs> but it was still just a difficult concept to grasp. I remember asking my sister's best friend with a practicing Catholic from a practicing Catholic family and we were like getting a lift back from somewhere with her mom and the two of us were chatting about Mary and I remember asking like but why do you need Mary <laughs> and she's like she's got Jesus's ears I've got Jesus's ears I mean I can just talk to him <laughs> and then it wasn't until when I was looking at whether I could become a Catholic or not and I was given this book called The World's First Love by the Venerable Fulton Sheen. And it was just this beautiful, it's quite a small book, just this beautiful little book on why Mary fills the role that she does and how we understand ourselves through her and Christ through her and the entire body of the church through her. And she kind of just brings them all together and shows us who we can be mm. while helping us to get there. Because she never leaves us alone to struggle. That's, um, really, that's really beautiful. And one of the quotes that I pulled out from it. We may be tempted to say, our Lord is enough for me. I have no need of her. But he needed her, whether we do or not. And what is more... Our blessed Lord gave us his mother as our mother. As with Cana, she knows what we need before we do. She is the link. The mother is not the doctor, and neither is Mary the saviour, but Mary brings us to the saviour. Oh, my days. That is so beautiful and so succinct in what it's saying. That's amazing. Yeah, there was another really beautiful one, what we were talking about earlier, about Mary being like the highest standard of beauty. The melody of her life is played just as it was written. Mary was thought, conceived and planned as the equal sign between ideal and history, thought and reality, hope and realisation. I clearly need to read this book. I know it's <laughs> it's one you absolutely should read. So, uh, yeah, And sitting amazing. on our bookshelf. I know, but I say this about many books. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a fascinating journey to go on, to to come around to that vision of her. Yeah. Kind of went from there to, I think, praying like a decade of the rosary every night. I used to count it on my fingers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're God's rosary They're beads. They're God's rosary beads. To having to make my own rosary beads because I didn't have any and I didn't know how to get any, but I didn't want to go and buy any, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So if you ever know anyone who you think is converting to becoming Catholic, give them rosary beads, just in case. <laughs> yeah, because I went from having no rosary beads and needing them to having like eight sets, <laughs> just after I got confirmed, which is quite funny. That, that's the traditional rite of passage for all Catholics, though. <laughs> Too many rosary beads! Exactly. And now I think you're in a position where you're free to really appreciate what Our Lady contributes to our understanding of Christ. That it's not that Christ is insufficient without her, but that we have access to a more full understanding of him. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the saints who talks about this the most is St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and I'm going to be quoting him later, but I think he just sets this up nicely. Why these devotions have a place and why they are helpful and beautiful. So the quote about this says, Bernard of Clairvaux ardently venerates the Virgin in his mystical theology because he is convinced that the Virgin is the embodiment of the most intimate relationship between divinity and humanity and thus mirrors the most sacred aspects of the spiritual union to which the human soul aspires. That's so beautiful. Yeah, and the fact that it's it's not one aspect, it's many aspects. It mirrors the most sacred aspects. So yeah, I think that's so integral to why we want to approach Mary is because she has this uniquely close relationship with Jesus which I think 
leads us perfectly on to our first named devotion of the episode, which is, I think you took this one, Phoebe. I did. It's Theotokos. Mm-hmm. I think I've pronounced it rightly. It's one of the oldest titles we have for Mary. It's Mother of God. So, I mean, you can guess how much we use that one. <laughs> it's also a fairly controversial one. It is. It went from beginning its life as controversial because it was first declared in the Council of Ephesus where there was this big controversy with Nestorius challenging the dual natures of Christ. So he was saying, he was challenging the divinity of Christ and saying that Christ was godlike or like not really God and challenging what's called the hypostatic union which is the divine will and the human will mm-hmm. of Christ. In declaring Mary as the mother of God, they counteracted the title that he was proposing, which was mother of the Christ. The rather mother of, or mother of the man. Mm-hmm. So that she was not just the mother of his human nature. One of the arguments put forth like in defense of the Theotokos title is a mother doesn't give birth to a nature. A mother gives birth to a person. Mm-hmm. And this is the person of Christ that Mary has given birth to. And I think the really beautiful thing about this title for me is that it's her defending the divinity and, and humanity of Christ. She holds the title of Mother of God in defence of who Christ is. And it's that way with so many of Mary's titles, mm-hmm. that she doesn't hold them for herself, but in defence of her son. That's so cool, yeah. And I think because in some ways it's easy to see why people have a problem with it. Like, how can God have a mother? Yeah, because I always used to look at that and go, yeah, but then if Mary's the mother of God, then you're implying that she's also divine. And potentially older than God. Yeah. Which wouldn't make any sense. Whereas, like, the documents from that council make that explicitly clear of Jesus Christ begotten from the beginning, Mm -hmm. but then becoming man in the womb of Mary, two natures united, rather than, like, her giving birth to a human Christ and then, like, superimposing the divine on that somehow. Yeah, because in some ways, if that were the case, the Annunciation needn't happen until post-Nativity, in a way. (laughs) You know? (laughs) That's just just... such a funny image. (laughs) Come down to, like, Mary holding the baby. Oh, can I make your son a god? (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, that would negate the will of... Mary to participate in it. His his birth as a being with two natures happened simultaneously. Yeah. And was cultivated in her body. So this is part of the, one of the documents from the council. It's a letter from St. Cyril of Alexandria to Nestorius. And he says, So he who existed and was begotten of the Father before all ages is also said to have been begotten according to the flesh of a woman without the divine nature either beginning to exist in the Holy Virgin or needing of itself a second begetting after that from his father. The word is said to have been begotten according to the flesh, because for us and for our salvation he united what was human to himself hypostatically and came forth from a woman. For he was not first begotten of the Holy Virgin, a man like us, and then the word descended upon him. But from the very womb of his mother, he was so united, and then underwent begetting according to the flesh, making his own the begetting of his own flesh. Mm. That's such an amazing tongue twister at the end. Making his own, Mary, the begetting of his own flesh. Oh, there's such a richness to it. And I think you're completely right when you say that she holds that title in defence of God and his divine nature. But I think... Only God could have the humility to raise a human up so high as to have her be called the mother of God. Yeah, like one of my objections and one of the objections I've heard since from other Protestants is, but isn't that taking glory away from God? Mm. And I remember our chaplain in university counteracting that so beautifully of, God doesn't worry about sharing glory. He loves to share the glory. You can't take glory away from him. Yeah. I think he said it more beautifully than that. But, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, the fact that Jesus himself called her mother. And so it's so beautiful that, like, every Hail Mary in the world that goes up every, like, second of every day, the, that 
we say that Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, that it's in there for all of us to say all of the time. Yeah, like what the Venerable Fulton Jean said of he needed her, mm -hmm. even if we think that we don't. Yeah. And that also that he gave us to her. Absolutely. He didn't keep her for himself as like his precious treasure. No, that she was given to all of us as our mother. And I think that was one of the points that came up when I was thinking about this for the reason why we have devotions is it, in some ways it also comes back to that line, behold your mother, look at her and see her in all of these different ways. You That's know? such a good way of putting it. That like there's a world of her to see that we have to behold her. Yeah, you can't just take a glance and then be done. Yeah, and seeing her in everything, like like as if you should be constantly beholding her, which I think kind of ties into my first devotion because it's one of these devotions that's very much tied to nature and tied to seeing the world around you, and that is Our Lady Star of the Sea. Oh, I love that one. Which, yeah, it's such a beautiful title. I think Phoebe and I, one of our favourite hymns is Hail Queen of Heaven, the Ocean Star which it's such an iconic image, it's such a vivid image, and it's one of those ones that is very captivating as an image, the idea of Mary kind of on the sea or in the skies above us amid the sort of crashing waves and, and turmoil. Yeah, I think what for me one of the beautiful things about that image is as a star it must automatically be night, mm -hmm. in my mind at least. Yeah. And therefore if it's night you can't see the sun, see, when you can't see Christ and yet you can see Mary, and she points the way. Yeah, it's beautiful. And so the devotion to Our Lady Star of the Sea is ancient. It's really old. It goes back to the 4th century. It's got a very kind of interesting history in that it potentially originated from, like, a typo. Um, <laughs> it's purportedly to go back to St. Jerome who wrote about it, but it might have been a drop of the sea. So it's the difference between the word Stilla and the word Stella. But others say that that was on purpose and that this, that was what he was trying to say. So it, it's a little bit confused, but I like to think that there are no kind of coincidences when it comes to Mary. If she wanted the title Star of the Sea, it was going to make its way out there. <laughs> well, it clearly did. I mean, if it had just been a typo, come on, it would have been forgotten about. <laughs> But the name encapsulates a wholeness to the word Mary. If you look at the etymology, it has quite a complex etymology. And Phoebe's smiling at me because <laughs> it's almost like Rachel Bingo when it, you get phrases like a really interesting etymology. Everyone. Yeah, I mean, I hear when you look at the etymology, I'm like, <laughs> and Rachel's off. Here we go. Fun time. Yeah, so there are a couple of different elements to the name. Mary has meanings and like implications in it. One of them is actually bitterness, which I think is really interesting when you consider how not bitter she is, but perhaps points to the bitterness of the road that she had to walk without becoming bitter. And like an Lady of Sorrows that we're going to be talking about later. Yeah, exactly. But it also has a connotation of the sea. So, like, we still have that word maritime, maris. So the Latin for star of the sea is stella maris. And we still have that kind of connotation of it being with the sea. But the other thing it has is it has a connotation with light. So it's where we get the word mere from. It's which now kind of means, like, only or just just about, but had more of a connotation of, like, absolute purity. So, you know, when C.S. Lewis says mere Christianity, it's a play on words. He's saying, like, oh, it's only Christianity. This is the basics. But he's also talking about the absolute, like, purity of it, like the most clear version. Oh, that's really interesting. And so there is that sense of like, I don't know whether this is actually true, but I kind of associate it with like the sparkling light on the water, that there is this illuminating aspect to the word mere. And St. Bonaventure broke it down much more eloquently, so I'll, I'll quote this. He said, The most holy, sweet and worthy name was eminently fitted to so holy, sweet and worthy a virgin. For Mary means a bitter sea, star of the sea, the illuminated or illuminatrix. Mary is interpreted as lady. Mary is a bitter sea to the demons. To men she is the star of the sea. To the angels she is the illuminatrix. And to all creatures she is lady. Which is so beautiful and so moving. Yeah, that's lovely. Uh, I love the eminently fitted, so holy, so sweet and worthy of virgin. Yeah, and so much of this comes down to is it fitting? And, yeah. And, and it is so fitting that she is the star of the sea. There are some people who make the point that maybe she's the morning star, which is the brightest star. But there are actually 
some biblical references to Jesus being the morning star. So like it's it's less kind of clear. So they, they tend to more usually associate her with the Polaris, the, the guiding star. Yeah. I mean, we can cross over. Anyway. I mean, we can have all kinds of symbols. I suppose the thing about the morning star is that you can see the morning star even when the sun is up. Yeah. So obviously, Star of the Sea, in its most usual devotion, it is mainly done by people who work on oceans or sea travellers or sea voyagers or people who live on coastlines and just a prayer of protection and a prayer of guidance. But I think there's so much more that we can learn from it and how anyone can take it on for clarity and for comfort. So I was just going to go into a few different approaches to Our Lady Star of the Sea. So the first was to look at her as a star. And I think because we were just saying that the Polaris, the guiding star, is such a great image because it is the star that guides you in the dark. And you only see it in the dark when you're in trouble, but you know to follow it. And it'll bring you to that horizon where the sun rises. But it shouldn't be surprising that stars lead us to Christ, because what did the Magi do? They followed a star to Christ. So we're following the star of our mother to Christ. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways I think it's so fitting. We're going to talk about how we have Our Lady of Sorrows and how close she is and how immediate she is to our pain. And that's such an important version of Our Lady to have and how in some ways I feel like we couldn't cope without it. But I think there is also something worthy of devotion in the idea of at the same time how Mary, even in the midst of all of our troubles, remains this pure and untainted and untouched far away star. Yeah, there's something in that preserved radiance as well Mm -hmm. that we can use to draw us onward. And bring us out of our situations yeah. and hope for more. Like you were saying with the, the quote from Fulton Sheen that she's the realisation of hope, you know, that we can hope for more because Mary shows us more exists. Yeah, she allows us to go beyond the ways of our own sinfulness. And so the quote that always comes to me is, because obviously I'm such a Tolkien fan, is the, the famous quote from Tolkien on this where Sam and Frodo are stuck in Mordor and it's just black smoke and dust and darkness everywhere. The quote is, and there peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold the thought pierced him that in the end The shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. That's lovely. Yeah, which to me is a really great way to think of Our Lady Star of the Sea. That she is this beauty that says all of the things that are bad and evil don't last. They they can't reach her. Yeah, I think it's so important to be able to have that image of Mary and yet have like the, the other images that bring her close to us as well. Mm-hmm. Because I think if she was only Star of the Sea, yeah. we would soon feel isolated and cold. Yeah, absolutely. Be- because the light from a star is only a cold light. Exactly. And that's why it's so good to have these different devotions. Yeah. Because she is both at once. And anything that we describe here on Earth is only but a pure shadow of who she really is. Yeah. Trying to describe Mary is bad enough, let alone trying to describe God. (laughs) And the other thing about her as that kind of untouchable beauty is that even if it is just like a cold and far off beauty, it doesn't leave us where we're at. No, it calls us on. It gives us a direction. But also in a practical way. Yeah, that it's not just something to aspire to, but she both gives you something to aspire to And also gives you the means for which to achieve it. Yeah. That she is literally directing you on how to get closer to her and her son. That's the beautiful combination of the two. That it doesn't just leave you on its own to imagine what beauty might be like in another world. No, she leads you on a journey. Yeah, exactly. And St. Thomas Aquinas actually said, Mary means star of the sea, for as mariners are guided to port by the ocean star, so Christians attain to glory through Mary's maternal intercession. It's such a nice combination of the two. And I know I I said I'd come back to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, so he has this beautiful quote which says, Look to the star of the sea, call upon Mary. If the winds of temptation arise, if you are driven out upon the rocks of tribulation, look to the star, call on Mary. If you are 
are tossed upon the waves of pride, of ambition, of envy, of rivalry, look to the star, call on Mary. Should anger or avarice or fleshly desire violently assail the frail vessel of your soul, look at the star, call upon Mary. May her name never be far from your lips or far from your heart. If you follow her, you will not stray. If you pray to her, you will not despair. If you turn your thoughts to her, you will not err. If she holds you, you will not fall. If she protects you, you will not need to fear. If she is your guide, you will not tire. If she is gracious to you, you will surely reach your destination. I love that it's Mary Star of the Seas. It's not even just Mary Star of the Hardness or the Wilderness. It, it's the seas which are so iconic and so deeply symbolic in, in the Bible and in our understanding. There's a couple of different elements to it. Like First of all, that the seas often indicated the Gentiles, like the people of other lands that came from the seas. And so Our, our Lady Star of the Seas reaching out to the whole world. But also, I mean, this, the sea is often, I mean, there's plenty of biblical quotes of the sea being like full of demons and a place of great danger for your soul and a place where you can sink. You have Isaiah 17, 12 to 13. Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, they roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. Yeah, I think it's also a place of life as well as such fear. And that was my other point, which is that the other thing is is that we're called to be fishers of men. Yeah. And if we're fishing, where is that? It's in the seas, you know? We, yeah, we can't avoid the sea, yeah. but it is a dangerous, dark place. Yeah, we are called to travel through it, and not only travel through it, but fish men out of the ocean in a way, like in a very kind of clumsy metaphor, but that we are called to be a vessel on the sea. There's that really ancient symbol of the, the anchor being a symbol of Christ and that idea of we're on a vessel together as a church, that it's a space where we're working together and working to bring more people into the vessel and into safety, but we're still on the sea and we need this guiding star and we need to know the direction of where we're going. And so I just think to counterbalance the fear and the turbulence of the sea, you have Maria full of grace. She, she is her own ocean of grace that she pours out on us. Oh, that's beautiful. I think Louis de Montfort has a, a really nice yeah. quote on it, which is that God the Father gathered all the waters together and called them the seas, or Maria. He gathered all his graces together and called it Mary, or Maria. The immense treasury is none other than Mary, whom the saints call the treasury of the Lord. From her fullness, all men are made rich. Yeah, so, there's that just kind of superabundance. Mm-hmm. of grace overflowing yeah and to if, fill us and help us yeah if you guys like this particular devotion there's some beautiful images there's one by bernadette karstensen that is a beautiful image of our lady and it's so again like the blue of the sea and the blue of her mantle and it, it just all works together so well there's a, also one by lawrence Clemix. that's k-l-e-m-i-c-k-s it's I guess like a lino print of a particular image of our, our lady on, on the ocean which is really really stunning and finally i also picked out there's a etsy shop called heart of jesus but jesus is spelled all capitals i-e S-V-S, so Heart of Jesus with the Roman spelling, but that it's such an evocative image, that turbulent sea and that beauty of Mary standing above it. It's so wonderful. And I think it really comes back to, there is quite a famous, I think it's a vision of St. John Bosco. It's from the 40 Dreams of St. John Bosco. And it says, imagine yourself to be with me on the seashore or better on an isolated rock and not to see any patch of land other than that under your feet. On the whole vast sheet of water, you see an innumerable fleet of ships in battle array. As escorts to that majestic, fully equipped ship, there are many smaller ships which receive commands by signal from it and carry out movements to defend themselves from the opposing fleet. In the midst of the immense expanse of sea, two mighty columns of great height arise a little distance from one another. On top of one there is a statue of the Immaculate Virgin, from whose feet hangs a large placard with the inscription Auxilium Christianorum, Help of Christians. On the other, which is much higher and bigger, stands a host of great size, proportionate to the column, and beneath which is another placard with the words Salus Credentium, Salvation of the Faithful. And it goes on to say that in a great kind of sea battle that the ships are throwing themselves at each other. And it says they make 
attempts in vain and waste all their labour and ammunition. The big ships go safely and smoothly on, on its way. Sometimes it happens that, struck by formidable blows, it gets large, deep gaps in its sides, but no sooner is the harm done than a gentle breeze blows from the columns and cracks up close and the gaps are stopped immediately. There's this idea of the prayer easing us through this turbulent battle on the sea. Ah, oh, that's great. And that ties us in nicely to our next title of Mary, which is Our Lady Help, Help of, of Christians. Christians. <laughs> <laughs> which is one of my favourite feast days. For um, a good reason. For a good reason. I was confirmed on this feast day and welcomed into the church. And the feast day is related to the victory of the European Christian forces over Islamic forces mm -hmm. during like the 16th and 17th century. So the one that Don Bosco was referencing there is the naval battle of Lepanto, mm -hmm. which was in the 16th century and was essentially a, quite a small European fleet against a much larger Islamic fleet, I think from the Ottoman Empire. And it was essentially Europe under threat. Like, what would have become of Christianity now if Europe had succumbed to Islam during that time? And it's the Pope calling on all of Christendom, so all of Europe, to pray the rosary. And through the prayer of all of Europe and of the soldiers on the ships, you have this great victory, mm. um, which then the feast is declared of Our Lady of Victory. Mm -hmm. And then from a further siege in the 17th century under the Ottoman Turks sieging Vienna, that becomes the Feast of Our Lady Help of Christians. And then it's also related to a victory of Pope Pius VII being freed under Napoleon. Mm. So I think it's really interesting to think of Our Lady as a victor in battle. Mm. Kind of a weird one, because I guess we normally think of Mary as all like peaceful and gentle and meek and mild and calm. Yeah, but my, I, I always come back to my favourite quote from, I believe it's Song of Songs, which is, Who is she that comes as the morning rises, beautiful as the sun, fair as the moon, terrible as an army set in battle array? Yeah, um, so I think there's the reminder that Our Lady has power. She's mm -hmm. the queen of angels. She's the queen of the hosts of angels, like the hosts of heaven. Like, um, like a, a host, a military yeah, host. Yeah, a military host. Like, mm -hmm. she's the queen of armies. Yeah. And that she is willing to fight to protect us and to support us in our fight for Christianity. And it is a really tough battle that we're fighting every day. I think it's a fight where we could do with more help from Our Lady Help of Christians. Yeah, particularly I think it just reminds us that she is there for us. That yeah. She's there to to aid us in the spiritual battle as well. Yeah, that there is real threats and real evils in our lives and that Mary wants to take us out of those and bring us through them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, I love that one so much. And it's so interesting to see it tied up in history and a real, a real sense of belief. Like the idea that you could call on a continent to pray the rosary is yeah. so cool. I think it's so cool in showing the power of the rosary as well. Yeah. That that is her weapon. Mm -hmm. Like all of the monks wearing the rosary bead where knights would wear their swords. That's amazing. Yeah, but I think it really reminds us that the rosary is in a sense our sword for this battle. Yeah, I think every saint I think I've ever read has said, pray the rosary. <laughs> Hurry up and do it! Which I think is so fascinating because that actually leads into my next one really well. And Excellent. It's so funny to think of them being connected. Because our, our, the rosary is our weapon. But what is the rosary? It's literally a garland of roses. That beauty is our weapon and our hope and our salvation. That like, yeah, I love that image of us creating a crown of roses for Our Lady every time that we pray the rosary. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Which leads us into, like I said, my next one, which in some ways it is a devotion to Our Lady, but it's more specifically a type of artwork called Hortus Conclusus, which is, it doesn't necessarily always refer to pictures of Our Lady, but in this particular context, it means pictures of Our Lady in an enclosed garden. That's what Hortus Conclusus means. It's uh, an enclosed space with a bounty of plants and, and flowers and 
all of the lushes of the natural world. So the idea of the enclosed garden has been associated with Mary since the medieval ages. And the reason for that has been a couple of different things. In terms of its theology, it primarily looks at the untainted nature of Mary, that she is not impacted by the outer world. So the, the immaculate conception, even though that wasn't quite the terminology of thinking of her at the time. Is it also to do with her virginity? Yes, her perpetual virginity and the idea that her womb is the garden that Jesus grew in. But it's a really, I think it's a really beautiful image. The actual wording comes from a typology which refers back to the Song of Songs, which I've actually already mentioned, but Mary and the Song of Songs are very linked. So so the Song of Songs is King Solomon's nuptial song to his bride was reinterpreted as the love and union between Christ and the church and the mystical marriage with the church as the bride of Christ. But the actual particular line that refers to in Hortus Conclusive is the line, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed up. And so that was the beginning of this kind of imagery of Mary sitting in a garden. And it comes into a lot of the artwork, whether it's specifically a Hortus Conclusive piece, or you'll see it in the background of a lot of images. So like Fra Angelico's Annunciation, you see like a nicely tamed garden and you see it in a lot of different ones in terms of the Annunciation that I really love. It's it's just called The Annunciation. It's 1892 by Arthur Hacker. Is that the really haunting one? Is she staring straight out at you? It's a really fascinating piece. I, I recommend it. But in the background, again, you see a garden. It's it's fairly typical. Well, it's typical in showing a garden. I wouldn't call it a typical piece otherwise. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Beautiful, though. Yeah, it's a, it's a really stunning piece. But to kind of get the depth of this meaning, I think it's important. Obviously, there are connotations of Eden, but we'll come back to those in a minute. There's also just a sense of the importance and the role of the garden at that time. I think now when we live in such a built-up and curated world in many ways, our idea of natural beauty is very much more tied to the wilderness, like getting away from that, getting away from all of the regulation and the manufacturing. But I think we shouldn't overlook what the garden meant, particularly to people in the past. It was this important space, which was absolutely a beauty, but it was also of practicality. That's where you got your food. And, and it was the zenith of what you could create. You think of like gardens of Persia and Egypt and Babylon, and um, not to say that those are all, all deserts, that's a very misleading idea of those kind of Middle Eastern areas, but that to cultivate a garden means to labour in it and means to work in it, you know? Yeah, and in terms of like an enclosed garden, I was thinking of the Victorian walled gardens. Yes. Which, if you've ever grown stuff in a walled garden, you find that it's just warmer than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Stuff grows better like magic <laughs> and it's a space created and dedicated to producing life yeah and that these spaces revolutionize the world when you consider what monastic living which a lot of the time was walled gardens as well specific spaces for curating these plants and things like that that they enabled civilization in many cases like we were saying that you're growing and you're growing fruitfully and it's a combination, like we were saying a bit like Star of the Sea, of beauty and practicality. The other thing that they that they produce other than like flowers, well obviously flowers and, and, and fruit, which is, you know, for beauty and for consumption, but for medicine as well. And there was this really mm -hmm. fascinating essay that I read, which I'll link in the show notes, which was all about placing this in a medicinal context and talking about how the different flowers and the different plants would have been used as healing and the connection of Our Lady with healing and with easing and with like easing our pains. Beautiful. So one of the quotes that's from it, she's referencing a couple of different writers here. So she says, in Hugo's day, the root of the white iris in particular was used to cauterize wounds. White columbine blossoms were applied to wounds and consumed for stomach pains and female disorders. And talking about how these things relate to the symbolism of the different flowers. So this is one of the things that I love most about the Hortus Conclusus. And it's something that we've really lost in the modern day, which is the language of the flowers and how 
at one time all of the flowers were understood in a divine and Christian context, that they were all given particular names and given particular relationships with Our Lady and with Christ. We still have some of them, we all know like roses typically mean the, the most beautiful and are associated with both Mary and, and Jesus, usually the white for Mary and the red for Jesus. Such a tragic thing to lose. It's, it's such an unfortunate thing and like I said when I was talking about Behold Your Mother, imagine seeing the world as having the fabric of theology woven throughout it. Imagine being able to go and pick flowers and tell a story of theology with it. It's so, so beautiful. And so combining this with also the information about how they were also healing as well is so profound and so wonderful. It says later, by transforming his medical knowledge into Eucharistic metaphor, Henry conceives of rose water as a liquid distilled from the petals of roses of Christ's bleeding wounds into the Virgin's tears, a function of which is to free the patient from the heat of sin. He appreciates the rose water's soothing effect on his feverish body wounded by sins committed during his life. There's such a like richness wow. and a depth of appreciation for the world around you. And I always go back to that quote from the, the Gospels where he talks about, see the flowers, are they not dressed more beautifully than, than the queens, you know? Yeah, that, not even Solomon in all his splendor had clothes like these. Exactly. And to me, flowers are such a sign of the superabundance of grace and the superabundance of love that God lavishes on us. Because in so many ways, he didn't need to create a world with flowers. They're an excess. They're an extra. They're, they're more than what we need. But it's such a gift. And in, the, in that way, Mary is the highest expression of that, that she's more than we could possibly have ever hoped for in our tainted nature, like we said. Yeah. God didn't need to create Mary. He could have become human without her. He could mm -hmm. have chosen that route. Yeah. But instead he chose to give us this gift. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it reminds me of actually that quote from the Sherlock Holmes story, The Naval Treaty, what a lovely thing a rose is. And it's, it's Sherlock Holmes of all people. What a lovely thing a rose is. He walked past the couch to open the window and held up the drooping stalk of a moss rose, looking down at the dainty bend of crimson and green. It was a new phase of his character for me, for I'd never before seen him show any keen interest in natural objects. There is nothing in which deduction is so necessary as religion, said he, leaning with his back against the shutters. It can be built up as an exact science by the reasoner. Our highest assurance of the goodness of providence seems to me to rest in the flowers. All other things, our powers, our desires, our food, are all necessary for our existence in the first instance. But a rose is an extra. Its smell and its colour are an embellishment of life, not a condition of it. It is only goodness which gives extras. And so I say that we have so much to hope for from the flowers. That's lovely. And so the image of the garden is so moving that it's this place where not only is there abundance, but there's an abundance of abundance. <laughs> um, there's an overflow of abundance. And, yeah. and understanding Mary through the flowers is such a moving and beautiful thing to do. And I would encourage you to look up the different meanings of the different flowers. I love that the violets are a symbol of Mary's humility because it's the shrinking violet, like so small to be thought of by God. If anyone's ever tried to find violets <laughs> in the wild, you'll know how hard they are to get. Or strawberries because they flower and bear fruit at the same time. Aww. So that they have their beauty and their fruit at the same time. There's so many beautiful ones. Um, Thistledown, another vi visitation symbol from its graceful movements in the air currents. Like, I, in some ways I feel so robbed that we don't have this understanding anymore. I know. And then to understand it, that it was used for medicine as well. Like I was reading how it protected against the onset of the plague in many cases. That this thing of great beauty and this thing of excess. Which plant is this? Just flowers in general, like these, the medicinal flowers. Oh, cool. Were also protecting people in like the battles, like you were saying, in the sense that they were in the middle of like the hardest of natural conditions protecting people and so that's why I really love the image and there's some really great medieval manuscripts that have this image there's the Madonna in Rosenhag by Stefan Lochner 
and the Meister de Frankfurter Paradiesgartlinen. <laughs> a lot of them are on if you go to the Wikipedia page for Hortus Conclusus because obviously they're medieval illustrations so they're free for use anywhere. But there's also a really lovely one. It's called the Madonna at the Fountain by Jean van Eyck because that's the other element. So you have all of these flowers but you'll notice in the quote from the Song of Songs a fountain sealed up. She's yeah, called... I was wondering what that meant. She's the fountain because she's the fountain yeah. of life. It's sealed up in the garden, not that the actual fountain itself is sealed up. Ah, okay. I was um, thinking of trying to put a plug in the yeah. fountain and the image wasn't working in my brain. <laughs> but that while the whole of the garden is closed off, the water from that fountain will feed beyond the walls. Oh, lovely. So that the grace, like, spreads out. Someone came up with this incredible point, which is that it's no coincidence that Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene as a gardener on Easter morning. Oh. Isn't that just wonderful? Yeah, or I remember um, from one of the Bible study courses I was hearing about, talking about salvation as bookended by two gardens. Mm. That you've got the the first end in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. and then bookend it to the resurrection in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's so perfect. And because one of the, like I said, we're going to come back to it, one of the most important parts of this garden is the inversion of Eve. So Eve was the person who ended up not being at home in the garden, whereas Mary is the person who is at home in the garden. Yeah, and one of the other very ancient titles of Mary that we give her is the new Eve. Mm -hmm. And the early church fathers used this title a lot. And again, it's a title that she holds because of Christ as the new Adam, that the two are kind of the counterparts to each other. So St. Jerome says, Christ is the new Adam, ergo Mary is the new Eve. The first Eve conceived the word of the serpent and brought forth death. Mary conceived the words of an angel and brought forth life. So yeah, I think it's just a beautiful reminder of how Mary brings forth that love. And there's some, again, beautiful imagery to go with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of the imagery that we see from Mary all over of her standing on the serpent mm-hmm. partly comes from that first that chapter m- in Genesis. That moment in the garden. Yeah, that yeah. moment in the garden, that that very image of God's prophecy to Eve that then becomes the prophecy of Mary and Christ, mm-hmm. of being set against the serpent and then her crushing the serpent by her yes, by her willingness to do the will of Christ. Mm. I think that's one of the most important things Mary teaches us of all times is that yes, that complete surrender to the will of God that gives up everything she would have thought of and unconditionally puts what God wants first. Yeah. And I think there's just so much in that, that whenever we are struggling we can go to Mary's fiat yeah, and we can hide ourselves there because even if we can't give perfectly, she can Mm -hmm. and she can help us to do that. And I think that really comes to the fore when it comes to suffering. I know this isn't, it wasn't actually to do with Mary, but this quote is to do with Jesus, but it's from Venerable Francis Xavier Nyung Van Tuan, who was a Vietnamese priest who was incarcerated for, I think, 13 years. But he said... To treasure each suffering as one of the countless faces of Jesus crucified and to unite our suffering to his means to enter into his own dynamic suffering love. It means to participate in his light, his strength, his peace. It means to rediscover within us a new and abundant presence of God. Oh, that's beautiful. Because there's so much about saying yes to God that's about saying yes to suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings us to another devotion of Mary, which I think I think most people find very powerful, which is Our Lady of Sorrow. And there's a lot of beautiful images. We have a beautiful icon in our lovely flat that has the seven swords piercing Our Lady's heart. Yeah, we did surround the laptop with Marian icons for this. <laughs> <laughs> we just had to. So the, the devotion of... Our Lady of Sorrows comes with a set of prayers and is usually based around, like I said, the seven sorrows, which are identified as 
the prophecy of Simeon, the flight into Egypt, the loss of the child Jesus in the temple of Jerusalem, Mary's meeting of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa, the crucifixion of Jesus on Mount Calvary, the piercing of the side of Jesus with a spear and his descent from the cross, and the burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea. And to ponder those things I think is so important about Mary because like we said it can feel because she's so beautiful and so perfect it can feel a lot of the time that we have nothing in common with her and that she doesn't know anything about what it's like to be so broken. Yeah like it can feel as if the Immaculate Conception that beautiful doctrine protecting the purity of Mary also then isolates her from us mm -hmm. because we're like oh but she didn't sin. Yeah. Um, like, but she felt the effects of the brokenness of sin mm -hmm. far more profoundly than we ever will. Yeah. Um, and I think what's beautiful about some of these sorrows is that they're also ingrained into the joyful mysteries. Yeah. That I remember a couple of years ago you turning around to me and being amazed by how I said, only Mary can make the joyful mysteries joyful. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> had my life turned around with an like, unexpected pregnancy had to travel across the whole of my country to go visit my pregnant sister while I'm pregnant, having to give birth in a stable, having the prophecy of Simeon, losing the child in the temple and then finding him, but losing him first. first. I lost God! <laughs> that, yeah, that every single one of those quote-unquote joyful mysteries, I think to any of us would be a sorrowful mystery in and of itself. And yeah, that she takes those moments and turns them to joy. There was a really great article on Word on Fire called Why Our Lady of Sorrows. It talks about that about how what Mary felt and what Mary went through and what her immaculate conception would have meant for her her feelings and it quotes the poet Wendell Berry and says for parents the only way is hard we who give life give pain there is no help yet we who give pain give love by pain we learn the extremity of love and the article goes on to say, It is our faith that the Mother of God accepted the gift of the Incarnation in a way that was wholly singular and unique. God in Christ entered into her life with a depth and intimacy that not even those angels closest to the throne of God have known. To the worldly-minded, such proximity to divine power should mean power, privilege, and personal glory. But none of these things were offered, and none would have been accepted. Such was the humility of the one who would be the Mother of God. What the mother of God did accept was the gift of being able to love God as a mother loves her only beloved son. But this would mean, as it means for all mothers, a sacrifice. Such love would engender pain. To give God his flesh from her flesh would mean that God would make his way into our world as vulnerable as we are. His joy would be her joy, but his suffering would be her suffering as well. She could not protect him from the suffering and death that would be his mission. And then I read another really fascinating quote. It's from the Remnant newspaper. It's called Our Lady of the Sorrows Pray for the Church. And I never thought of it this way, and I find it really moving. It says, We only know this, that Mary took the sufferings of her divine son deeply to heart. The towel of Veronica is, as it were, a symbol of the heart of the Blessed Virgin. If that cloth, which was clean, took so faithful an impression of the sorrowful countenance of Jesus, how much more must the pure heart of Mary have received and preserved the most true and most perfect representation of the bitter sufferings of Jesus? Well, that's incredible. Yeah. I love that parallel between the two. I think it's... Yeah, it's great. Never heard that one before. No, it, like, I honestly, it's so interesting to me because I always have had a deep devotion to Veronica and it, it, it's very exciting to me to see that combination. Yeah, that the purity of the cloth is but a shadow of the purity of Mary. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that she shares in that suffering, mm -hmm. that the sword which pierced her heart during the Passion was a sword indeed, that we can call her Queen of Martyrs for a reason. Yeah, yeah, and I love that title for her as well. One of my favourite images is the... He did a, a large number of Madonna paintings, but people usually combine two in particular for this. It's by Bourgerot, and there's one picture of Our Lady holding the child Jesus, and she looks quite serene, and there's, again, lots of flowers around her, and, and then it shows her 
holding the crucified Jesus and she's looking again straight out at you with this haunted expression and it's the parallel between the two that in accepting one she accepted the other and of course obviously the most famous example of that in artwork is the Pieta um, which we've discussed a lot in the episode on sacred art and architecture. I think another image which really ties those two together of both the passion of Christ and the child Christ is Our Lady Perpetual Help. Mm-hmm. which is such a beautiful illustration of Christ running to Mary for help. There's a beautiful hymn that goes with it that describes the image of the child Jesus having received a vision of his passion and flying to his mother's arms. That's so um, beautiful. That, like, his feet are bare, he's, like, run there and is clinging to her mm-hmm. and holding on to her while haunted by these angels bearing the instruments of his passion. So on either side of the icon of Mary and Jesus, you've got symbols of the passion of Christ. And then it's not Christ who looks out at us, but Mary Mm -hmm. calling us to see the suffering of her son and yet offering us her help. And that there's that line in Lamentations which is so associated with her. Oh, all ye that pass by the way, attend and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow. I always think that's so beautiful. beautiful. And there's a quote that we actually read this quote out before. It was in the episode on female protagonists, but I think it's worth reading out again. It's by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. And he said, If Mary had been given to us as our mother in Bethlehem, if she had wrapped herself in her unique joy, if she had been to us but a figure of incarnate bliss, then when the horror of darkness fell upon us, we too should have crept away from even her to suffer in loneliness. A religion that presented to us Mary with her living child in her arms and had no Mary with her dead son across her knees could not have been the religion to which we should turn in utter confidence when all else had failed. More, she could not have been our mother in any but an adopted sense, if her bearing of us had been without pain. But, as it is, she who brought forth her unfallen firstborn painlessly brought forth the rest of her fallen human family in agony and darkness. Indeed, she is the mother of the redeemed because she was the mother of the redemption. She stood by the cross of Jesus as she knelt by his cradle, and she is our mother then, by that very blood which both she and we are alike redeemed. The mother of sorrow must always be nearer to the human race than even the cause of our joy." That's beautiful. And there's one last quote on this, which I think is really nice, and I think ties in with our final devotion, and calls back to my Hortus Conclusus, which is the visions that were given to St. Bridget of Sweden, of Our Lady. And the angel addressed these words to St. Bridget, As the rose grows up amongst the thorns, so the mother of God advanced in years in the midst of sufferings. As the thorns increase with the growth of the rose, so also did the thorns of her sorrow increase in Mary, the chosen rose of the Lord, as she advanced in age, and so much more the deeply did they pierce her heart. And then speaking of roses, yes, I think that's going to tie into the one apparition that we're going to talk briefly about, which is Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mm -hmm. And this is tied in with another of Mary's titles of Woman Clothed in the Sun, Mm -hmm. which... So, of course, the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe, of asking for a church to be built and asking Juan Diego to carry up roses to her in his tilma, and then dropping the roses and having this incredible vision imprinted. Like we were talking... That's such a dramatic image of, like, roses everywhere, roses when there shouldn't be roses. Yeah. And then, yeah, this miraculous image... And it's, I, I guess it's the only image of Our Lady that Our Lady gave to us. Absolutely. Which, if you're looking for a devotional image, is kind of peak, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, for me, one of the really interesting things about these, this image is it gives us an understanding of how Mary can relate to different cultures. Yeah. Because in the image, she doesn't appear as some, like, serene, white, blonde, European Mary that we see in a lot of our pictures. Mm -hmm. She's, I think, a mixed-race Aztec Portuguese. Mm -hmm. So, like, she's a combination of the two cultures which are clashing at the time. Yeah. And then she's also dressed in a way that speaks to the Aztec culture, Mm. which I think is beautiful. So, like, she's in front of the sun. She's greater than the sun, illuminated by the sun, which kind of states her greatness over their sun god. But then you can kind of see how a lot of the images that we relate to Mary, like her standing on the moon, which is all tied back to Revelation, 
also spoken to this particular culture in this particular place, which I think is a great illustration of how you can do both at once. Yeah, that it can be thoroughly specific and also thoroughly biblical. Yeah, absolutely. They had one of the Aztec deities was a feather serpent. um, I can't pronounce any of these. I think it's Quetzalcoatl. But he's a feather serpent and obviously she's got her foot on the serpent. Mm. So she's crushing their deity. She's greater than their sun god. She's Her mantle is covered in the stars of heaven, which they worship the stars, but she's the virgin and queen of heaven. Yeah. So she's kind of proclaiming who she is. She's greater than the stars. She's greater than the sun. She's standing on the moon. She's crushing the serpent. And then she's pointing to Christ. Yeah. Because she's wearing... So, oh, and sorry, her, even her mantle, the blue-green, was a royal colour for them. Yeah. So, like, she's proclaiming herself as queen and then pointing to the one who's greater than her. That she's wearing the belt of maternity while her hands are folded in prayer. That she's saying, this is who I am. This is how powerful I am. And I am bearing one even greater. Yeah. And I think that's such a good representation of what Mary does. She doesn't proclaim who she is for the sake of proclaiming herself, mm-hmm. but that she proclaims it for the sake of drawing us to her son. That's so beautiful. There's so many. I know for a fact we're already way over time, but we could keep going for forever. There's so many layers to beholding our mother, which I think is kind of the slogan for this episode, behold your mother. But I think we better call it a day for this episode. So I think we should. Super quickly. Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Yeah, I've been on a Jane Austen glut recently. So I just finished Northanger Abbey and was reminded by how very funny it was. Because I think I'd kind of slightly written it off. Not completely, but it is. it doesn't meet the same literary standard as some of the rest of Jane Austen's work. Yeah. But it's really, really funny. And I was sending you quotes from it of Jane Austen's tongue-in-cheek comments on a woman's understanding and then her, like, flip side of that. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I like great. I like getting those texts. I think the thing that I'm enjoying at the moment is a video I showed everyone in our Bible study group. Oh, uh, that was incredible. Which is called Why Hollywood Matters. It's a talk at Christendom University by Barbara Nicolosi. And she just talks about, in some ways it's about um, cinema, but it is more largely just about why beauty matters and how we've abandoned beauty and like breaking it down the ways and the sacrifices we've made to not have beauty, which is kind of crazy and how much we're risking when we do that. And she's very funny. It's an hour long, but it it flies by. She's very entertaining. So I'd really recommend that. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. So I think that's us. As always, please rate and Uh, review and share and all of those great things hopefully this is obviously quite an image heavy podcast so I will try to put as many of the images that we talked about on the Instagram for you to browse through so hopefully that'll help you find some of the images that we've been talking about so make sure to check out our Instagram so that's at risky enchantment podcast on Instagram but other than that have a wonderful week and we will talk to you next time goodbye bye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.